Hey everyone, welcome back to another Bible study. I'm Luke Parker and I am so excited that we are trying to learn, live, and love like Jesus in this time. And we know that to do that, we need deep prayer lives. And so we're spending some time with a dog-eared prayer book. Today we're going to be in Psalm 27, which is actually a request from one of you, and that's really fun. I know that some of you have been listening and have been watching these on YouTube, the podcast that we've got, and it's really fun to be getting feedback from you and questions and thoughts. Please let us know if we've said something that we don't explain well, or if you have some question about something else in the Psalms, because we'd love to get to it. We've got time. So turn with me to Psalm 27. And pay attention to your English Bible and where it might be a little different from mine. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, they devour my flesh. My adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the covers of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says. Seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This psalm is a favorite of many, for good reason. It begins with these bold statements of confidence. And you get the sense the psalmist is speaking from experience, that bad things have happened in the past, and that God has delivered him from them all. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Absolute confidence here. The God who has rescued him in the past defines his present situation. A position of protection. No matter what enemies, no matter what fears, no matter what threats come against him, he is confident that God is his light and salvation. And yet this psalm has a dramatic change in tone going forward. At first, there's lots of statements of confidence, even in the midst of some real danger and threat. And the psalmist is clearly seeking God in this season, and it makes us wonder if 
these threats aren't entirely in the past. And finally, in verse 7, he sort of gets to the point, and we realize he's not quite as confident as he seems. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious, answer me, don't hide your face from me. And the next seven verses don't really sound very much like the first. And it makes people wonder if maybe these psalms were actually composed at different times. Some scholars have suggested these are two psalms just slammed together. And I don't believe this is two psalms written at different times, in part because we have no manuscript evidence that there was ever more than one psalm here, but in part because my prayer life is exactly this schizophrenic. I don't know about you. But I'm absolutely confident in who God is and what God has done in my life. And that is not mutually exclusive with my own fear and my desperate need for God to show up in my life. We need God to show up in our lives. There are some people who don't really know what it is to be afraid. And then there are the rest of us. And you find fear creeping up on you for lots of different reasons and in ways that maybe embarrass you at times. Sometimes you're scared of things that make sense. The future, or disease, or what's going to happen to me if I lose my job? What's going to happen to some of my older family members, people I care about? And sometimes we're scared of things that don't make sense. It usually starts with a fear that is somewhat rational and then just spirals out of control. Until we begin to imagine that worst-case scenario. Everyone we know will get sick. That things will never get better. We start imagining crazier and crazier hypotheticals, and we know it's irrational, but our heart is pounding and our mind is racing and we can't sleep at night, and we even begin to wonder if God is against us, even when we know that God is not against us. In this psalm, there are 44 instances of a first-person pronoun. Me, my, I. It's either possessive, or it's the subject of a verb, or the object of a verb. You're being invited to become the me, the my, the I. You're being given words, when maybe you don't have words to pray. There are some things you learn by doing. We can learn things from books, we can learn things in classrooms, but there are some things you can only learn by doing. This is why there used to be things like apprenticeships. You would go to a blacksmith shop, and you'd watch him make nails. And then he would hand material to you, and you would make a nail, and he would tell you why you're doing a bad job. He'd show you again, and you'd do it again. The Psalms are an apprenticeship in prayer. They are prayers that teach you how to pray. As though someone is praying with you across thousands of years, teaching you that it's okay to be afraid, and it's okay to trust God. Teaching you that the only thing that makes sense is to cry out to God, when you're really afraid, even if you're not 100% sure he's listening and you're not 100% sure he's going to come through. The psalmist knows how to pray. It's not a record of someone's prayers from so long ago that we read and think, wow, how interesting. They used to have spiritual lives. This is an invitation for you and I to come and pray the same words, to learn what it is, have a deep, rich faith in a God who sometimes moves slower than we would like. This is an intensely personal prayer to an intensely personal God. And that's why the psalmist is so confident, even in his lack of confidence, that God will hear him 
and answer him. And so in the meantime, he goes into God's house, his temple, looking for his presence. In this particular psalm, we get quite a few images, places, stronghold, house, temple, shelter, rock, and tent. At least five images of who God is in the life of the psalmist and what God's presence means to this psalmist. This is an ancient fortress called Moa. It's in the northern part of Israel. You can see it from the side here. It's high on a rock. This is an aerial view. It's a stronghold that keeps you safe from enemies, but it's also high up, because the high ground was a safer place to be when enemies start surrounding you. This is a tent that you would see in Bedouin places. A tent is a large space. Plenty of room for you and your mother, your father, your family. It's a shelter in a barren wasteland. A place of rest and safety in the midst of storms, wild animals, and robbers all around. But God's tent isn't like everyone else's tent. It's not just a shelter. This is the tabernacle that we hear about all over the place in the Old Testament. And that is constantly with God's people in the midst of God's people. And yet God's tent isn't just some lowly tent anymore. The psalmist has in mind the temple, a great, strong structure right in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem at 150th scale, with an example of what the temple would have looked like. You see it high above the rest of the city with its great strong walls. But the thing that makes this place so secure and so safe for the psalmist is that God's presence dwells there. It's not the building, it's not the walls, it's the presence of God. I'm only looking for one thing, he says. I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to see God's beauty. In the end of the psalm, he will actually tell us, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord, beauty of the Lord, in the land of the living. Not at some point in the future, not in some distant heaven, but here and now, that God will answer me. You can see how the psalmist blends confidence with his own fear and anxiety. He's constantly making strong statements about who God is and what God will do, what God has done, even as he talks about being given up to the will of my enemies. What will happen if God does not teach me his ways and lead me on a level path? The psalmist is in desperate need for God to do what God has done in the past. And yet, his faith in God is the very thing that is keeping him safe and secure in this time, lifting his head up above his enemies all around. In fact, it's in the midst of his enemies that God is a stronghold of his life. Paul talks about this kind of faith, this kind of shield, in Ephesians chapter 6. He says that our struggle isn't against the enemies that we can see nearly as much as it's against enemies we can't see that are bent on our destruction. Comforting, right? We already have an invisible enemy, and Paul is telling us you have more enemies 
and they're even more dangerous. It's enough to knock you out. And so we need to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand. We put the belt of truth around our waist, the breastplate of righteousness. But shoes on our feet, whatever will help us to proclaim the gospel of peace. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The actual Bible in your hands right now is a weapon against the enemies that threaten you. But in the midst of it all, we hang on to the shield of faith. A defensive weapon against the enemies that would destroy us. You might not be able to get masks right now. Hand sanitizer right now. You might know that going to the grocery store is a vulnerable and dangerous place, or being out in the world just feels scary right now. But you do have a weapon that can keep you safe. For Paul, this is a metaphor that would have been really obvious to his people. This is an actual relief taken from the city of Ephesus, of a soldier behind his shield. You can't even really see his body or his face. That's how protected he is. And this is a mosaic from the floor of a sort of a gym in Cyprus where gladiators would train. You can see the gladiators with all of their weapons, breastplates, belts, armor for their feet, their dangerous rectangles. But right in between you and your enemy is the shield. The shield can buy you time. The shield can bear you up against blow after blow. And I know some of us have been experiencing blow after blow lately. Paul is advocating that we take hold of the shield of faith here, in the same way that the psalmist has clearly done for many years. And that's what gives the psalmist such confidence in a difficult and dangerous season. Why he can say, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The thing that gives me strength and courage is the shield of faith that I have taken hold of. Henry Nouwen says that a waiting person is a patient person. The word patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the full in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Impatient people are always expecting the real thing to happen somewhere else, and therefore want to go elsewhere. The moment is empty. Patient people dare to stay where they are. Patient living means to live actively in the present and wait there. Waiting, then, is not passive. It involves nurturing the moment, as a mother nurtures the child that is growing in her womb. The most important frequent use of the word wait, however, is to define the attitude of a soul Godward. It implies the listening ear, a heart responsive to the wooing of God, a concentration of the spiritual faculties upon heavenly things. Patience. Faith. You and I are in a season of waiting right now. But we aren't waiting for the scientists to figure things out, or for our rhythms to return, or for us to get our lives back to normal. We're waiting for the Lord. You and I are in a season of waiting right now. And you might think, yeah, I'm just waiting to leave my house. I'm just waiting for my kids to go back to school. I'm waiting for some vaccine to be created. I'm waiting for my office to let me come back to work. I'm waiting to hear if my family members are healthy. I'm I'm waiting for this all to be over with, for the government to solve it for something. I'm, I'm waiting. 
the economy to turn itself around. But prayer teaches us to think theologically. Think about our situation in light of who God is. The psalmist, surprisingly, does not ask God to get rid of his enemies. He doesn't ask God to make things go back to normal. He asks God to be with him, to teach him. But ultimately, the prayer is that God would teach him how to wait. That even in the midst of his faith, that God would give him more faith that he shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is what I'm waiting for, says the psalmist. I'm not waiting for the defeat of my enemies nearly as much as I'm waiting to see the goodness of the Lord. And then he starts commanding. The psalmist is teaching us something we've heard from Habakkuk to Hebrews. The righteous live by faith. Over and over and over again, we know that our only hope doesn't come from us. It comes from who God is and what God has done. The psalmist is teaching us to have this kind of faith. He's not commanding us to have it. He's teaching us to have this kind of faith by teaching us to pray in this way. By teaching us to feel terrified and surrounded and still wait for the Lord. Be strong and to be courageous. These commands at the end aren't for you and me. The psalmist is commanding himself. In fact, earlier in the psalm, he was also commanding himself. This is harder to see in English, but these are cohortative verbs. So I want to offer, or I know that I should offer, I'm going to try to offer, Noisy sacrifices. Literally in Hebrew, it's sacrifices of shouting. That what I'm offering God is a sacrifice of praise. I, I want to sing and make melody to the Lord. I'm telling myself to, to do it. Come, my heart says, seek his face. And I'm trying to listen, Lord. I'm, I'm, I know that I'm supposed to look for you in this time, and so I'm, I'm looking for you in this time. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Show me, God, how to follow you. This isn't a simplistic kind of faith. I know for some of us to to hear, well, you just need to have faith in difficult times can create a, a cynicism in us or a skepticism in us. But the psalmist isn't telling you to have faith. He's showing you his own struggle with faith. And you're being invited into this kind of prayer. You're not being commanded to have faith. You're being taught to have faith. Welcomed in to a kind of praying that leads us into a deeper and deeper relationship with the goodness of the Lord while we are in the land of the living. A kind of prayer that trains us for a future relationship, for a future land, a future kingdom that we know we are citizens of in the here and now. He's training our hands to hold the shield of faith. And because this is a psalm, he isn't just doing this with words, because the psalms are poetry. That's sometimes tough to see because it's been turned into English. And English poetry usually rhymes. So the psalms are terrible poetry for us because it's nothing like Dr. Seuss. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Salvation and life don't rhyme. But the Hebrews 
rhymed meanings. So you see things like, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? There's a lot of parallelism in Psalms. When evildoers try to hurt me, that doesn't work out for them. If an army came against me, I wouldn't be afraid. If war rose up against me, I would still be confident. And this kind of rhyming meanings can actually create really big structures. This is called a chiasmus. And it's sort of my guess at a structure you could see in the psalm. Somebody else could find something else, and they'd probably be right. Poetry is often open to more than one interpretation. Basic idea is that in Psalm 27.1, we hear about the psalmist's confidence, and at the last verses, we hear about his confidence. And then we hear about enemies, how they stumble and fall. And toward the end, we hear about his enemies, and how he wants God to lead him on a straight, level path, so that he won't stumble and fall. He asks things of God, and suddenly we see him asking more things of God. Even if he had nowhere to live, he's confident God would invite him into his house, and here we hear about his desire to live in God's house. Earlier in the psalm, we want him to hide me in his shelter, but later in the psalm, we ask that God would not hide from me. The psalmist is lifting his head up and singing and shouting. He's lifting his heart up, crying out to God. Right at the center, the psalmist prays, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me. Answer. I just want you to listen, God. That's all I'm looking for today. He invites us into his faith. The faith that's the only thing keeping him alive right now. He draws all of our attention to the middle of the psalm. The faith that he has to pray to God in this time, and the struggle he has in his prayer at this time. The psalmist is teaching us something. Oswald Chambers, in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, says, Patience is more than endurance. A saint's life is in the hands of God like a bow and arrow in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something that the saint cannot see. He stretches and strains, and every now and again the saint says, I can't stand anymore. God goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight, and then he lets fly. Trust yourself in God's hands. Maintain your relationship to Jesus Christ by the patience of faith. The psalmist says much the same thing. In fact, that word wait in Hebrew has tension in it. It's a word that you could use for the stretching of bow and arrow. The psalmist is waiting. And in the meantime, praying for strength and courage. Even as we hear him say, I believe that it's coming. In the very next breath, he says, I'm waiting. And I'm trying to be courageous. I'm waiting and waiting, God. You're stretching me beyond the point that I think it's possible. But my faith is in you. I trust you. I believe in you. And I know you won't let me down. Well, friends, that's our Bible study for today. You're being invited into a kind of faith, a faith that maybe you've experienced in the past, and you just haven't needed it a lot lately. But now, all of a sudden, this prayer makes a ton of sense to us. It seems necessary in the world that we live in that we would 
wait for the Lord, that we would cry out to him, look, I know you are trustworthy. I've seen you do things in the past, and I just need you to do that again. That's what I'm waiting for, God. How long, O Lord? The psalmist is inviting us into this kind of faith in the meantime. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In this day forward and evermore. Amen.